This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, September 10th, 2017. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Good morning. We are beginning Titus, and before I pray, uh, I did want to make one mention. Uh, it's exciting day today. Uh, Roots Church, so you may have heard a little bit about Roots Church. So back in 2006, myself and a couple others planted Damascus Road Church. In 2011, we planted Communion Church, uh, and now Communion Church in 2017, right, is planting Roots Church. And so there's just a beauty in reproduction, a beauty in God's uh, churches continuing to multiply, and uh, they will be launching tonight in Stanwood uh, at a 5 p.m. service, and so we're excited for Pastor Derek Fekas, who is an elder of communion and now obviously is leading that church. And so uh, I'm going to pray for them, pray for us, and pray for our time in God's Word this morning, which will be in Titus. So let me pray. Father God, we praise You for Your goodness. We praise You for Your greatness. We praise You for Your grace. You are the reason why we are here, Lord. It is Your name that we want to make much of today. We ask that You will be present with us richly, that You will teach us through Your Word about who You are and who we are and what we ought do as Your people. Pierce our hearts, Lord, with Your Word. Convict us if we need conviction. Comfort us if we need comfort. And mature us in the knowledge and truth of Jesus Christ. We lift up, Father, Restoration Road Church. I thank you for how you are growing your church and shaping your church and protecting your church and sanctifying your church. This is your church, not ours. And we are privileged to be on mission with you in this place, though we desire, Father, to be with you where you are. And we pray for your return quickly. Until then, we will do what you have called us to do. We thank you for Roots Church. We thank you for Pastor Derek and his team, that he is being faithful to the same commission that you gave your disciples thousands of years ago, to go and make disciples, to continue to gather as the church. We ask that you will help Derek and his team and those who are in his care, if nothing else, just to be faithful, not to try and be super creative or missional, so that they can try and reach, but just to be faithful, faithful to your word, faithful to your commands, faithful to love one another. Protect them from the enemy who would love to destroy this young plant that is going and help us to be an encouragement and a support to them in any way we can. May we be reminded, Lord, that, that your word is still going forth, that there are still people to be saved and help us to take an interest and have a desire to join you in that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we are in the book of Titus. We'll be in there for, oh, six or seven weeks, and it's about His church. Now the Lord Jesus Himself said when He was, before He got crucified and was with Peter, He said that He was going to build His church. And the Apostle Peter said, after Jesus' resurrection, that we are being built up as a spiritual house to make spiritual sacrifices through Jesus to Jesus as the church. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus had died for his church because he loved the church so much. He says that he is the head of the church, which is his body, and that he is devoted to planting the church and growing the church and protecting the church and so the question remains, how is it even possible to love Jesus and to not love the church? That's been a common statement in the last few years. Of people, I love Jesus, but I, His church, no thanks. Our study of Titus is called Good Church. And it's a seven-week study about the church, the people of God the family of God, the bride of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, this thing called the church. And throughout the years, this kind of misunderstood and 
misrepresented at times and even misdirected community that Jesus said he was going to establish and grow and dwell in has developed quite the reputation, good and bad. If you look at the today's writer's market or just even the blogosphere of what people are saying and writing, it continues to be full of blogs and books about how to fix the church. There are books attacking new ways of doing church. Writers that condemn outdated models of doing church. Books that give you surefire growth strategies to grow the church. Books to help worldly churches be more religious and perhaps help religious churches be more cultural. Everyone wants to talk about and is talking about what's wrong with the church, but very few want to talk about maybe what is right with it. And perhaps it's because no one really knows what makes a good church. Everyone seems to know what makes a bad church. A bad church is the reason I left that former church. But what makes a good church? And if I were to ask that question, like, well, what, what do you think is a good church? Whether it be asking someone who's a believer or a non-believer. What, what do you think makes a good church? I'm confident that even Christians would say, well, it, it's, it's this, it's that. They all have different answers. It's good preaching. It's good doctrine. It's Good leadership, good outreach, good mission trips, good music, good kids program, good youth program. Just good people. Some good stuff. In truth, you know, we actually judge what is good about the church, usually according to what I prefer or I want versus what the Bible actually says I need. See, the Bible seems to be the place, correction, the last place that anyone is looking to find out what the church is, which is ironic because the Bible is what tells us that the church is, like exists. It's where it comes from. But yet people are not looking there to determine what the church is supposed to be. I remember, um, this is years ago, that a church plant came to town and they had posted signs everywhere that said, come redefine the church experience with us. Okay, that sounds good, I guess. They actually had another group that held meetings in order to ask the community, what is the church of your dreams? And their effort, when asked, why are you doing that? Well, we want to make sure church is fun and friendly and meaningful. Now, I'm not sure our dreams are necessarily the best place to start when we're talking about defining the church and what it's supposed to be. The question is not what makes a church good. The question is what makes a good church, regardless of size, regardless of shape, regardless of location. Like we've seen over the Three months that I was on sabbatical, I went to lots of different churches, different shapes, different size, different places, different styles, different denominations. Even in this culture, we've seen churches that look healthy and yet disappear in six months after existing for many years. How do I know what a healthy church is? What's a biblical church? What's a faithful church? Is it all just by appearances or is there something more? And that's why we go to Scripture. That's why we're going to spend seven weeks studying a letter to a young pastor who's helping a young church plant become a strong church. And he lays it out pretty clearly. So just to start off, like, what is actually a church? Forget good for a second. Like, the idea of church, people believe or, or tend to believe, well, it must have been something man made up. No, it's not man's idea. It is and was always God's. It's not some optional thing that just sounded like a good idea. It was actually not God's plan B. The term for church is a Greek word. It means ekklesia, the gathering or the assembly. 
and the Greek Old Testament translation of a Hebrew word, kahal, and it describes an assembly of called out people. So we think of the church as an assembly of called out people, when we, literally. And we see this laid out in the Old Testament, right? God calls the Hebrews, right, the sons of Abraham, out of slavery in Egypt to be worshipers. He gathers them together as a people to be worshipers. We see the Exodus redemption, right? Moses leads them out after all those plagues. He goes through the Red Sea, and then he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai where God meets them, and he covenants with his people, and he begins to dwell with them in the most amazing way. If you read the last chapter of Exodus, You have this picture of the tabernacle there and God's glory coming to dwell in the midst of his people, identifying them as God's people, the place where God's presence dwells. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds his people of that experience. He says, remember how on that day you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, And the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and they may teach their children to do so. I'm not sure that sounds much different than what we're called to do, to gather in the presence of God that we might hear his words and learn to fear him and teach our kids to do the same. Pretty basic, pretty Old Testament. But at Mount Sinai, in that moment, God claimed his people. He said, these are my people. Not because they were special. This is really important. The Hebrews were not special because they were somehow less sinful or better looking or like super spiritual. They were just as messed up as everyone else in the world. According to Deuteronomy 6, you know why God chose them? He says, I didn't choose you because you were special. I just decided to love you. I chose you because I set my love on you. Out of all peoples, they were God's chosen. They were God's possession. They were God's treasure through which they would bless the whole world and all nations. The church, right, God's assembly is defined by belonging to God, by dwelling with God, by living for God together. It's interesting how we have perceived church or maybe how the world has perceived church as just a place where Christians happen to hang out on Sundays as a once a week event, but it's more than that. It's more than just an event. It's more than just some religious institution. It's more than a Christian club. As I said before, you have to get to a place where you realize the church wasn't ever this optional extra bonus thing that God suddenly tried to do as a plan B. It wasn't an addendum to his plan. It was always central to it. Jesus was not anti-religious in the sense of being anti-church. He wasn't anti-organization. He was anti-sin. Jesus didn't die, though, for one person. He actually died for a church to restore a specific group of people through whom he would continue to restore the world through the gospel. So that's the church. It's a big part, a central part, a necessary part, a special part of God's plan. But what is a good church? Because there's lots of churches out there, and we know there's some bad ones. few things that we learn in the opening to Titus here. First and foremost, a good church begins with a good God. And that sounds so obvious. Like, duh, right? And a lot of these things in Scripture are actually quite simple and obvious, And yet we tend to forget or maybe not unpack it because it's so simple. We just dismiss it and move on. I don't want to do that, especially this simple introduction to this letter. Now, Titus is a young pastor. He's trying to get this church plant, this new plant on the island of Crete, kind of together. And so Paul begins this letter written to this 
young man is very special to him, and he calls himself something specific, which, again, we typically read over. He says, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Don't overlook the greetings of letters as if, okay, let's get to the meat of it. Let's just skip past it. It's very important because Paul is showing you how he views himself. This is later in his life, and he is given an insight into his identity as a person. And he identifies himself literally as a slave of God. He says, I, Paul, a slave of God. That would sound kind of awkward for us to say today. A slave of God. Now think about Paul for a second. Just like you, Paul is a real dude, and he has lots of different hats and roles and things that have happened in his life. If I were to ask, who are you? You had all kinds of things. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm this. Like, oh, all these pieces to it. I'm a business owner. I'm a plumber. Paul is many things. He's a man. He's a Jew. He's a Roman. He was a hyper-religious, well-educated Pharisee. He was a murderer of Christians. And then he became a follower of Jesus. He became a pastor. He became a missionary. He became a church planner. And so out of all the things he could have identified himself as, out of all the things of like, this is who I am, you know what he doesn't focus on? He doesn't talk about his past sin. Yeah, this is what I did. This is who I am. I'm recovering this. I'm recovering that. He doesn't talk about his pedigree, and it's big. He doesn't talk about his accomplishments, and they are many. His core identity is I'm a servant of God. What about I'm a servant of God? But you did this, I'm a servant of God. He's a man without any personal authority, without any ownership. I think of what a slave is. I have no authority in myself. I have no ownership. In fact, I don't have direction for my days apart from what God gives me. That's a slave. That's a servant. He's a man under authority who sees himself as a steward of God's stuff, including the breath in his lungs. It's God's. Because he can take it away right now. This is a man whose life is centered on God. We don't think about we, those phrases like, I'm going to live a God-centered life. Do you really, can you unpack that, what that would mean if you devoted yourself to as a God? The most God-centered man ever, Jesus, was crucified. I'm going to live a God-centered life. Are you prepared to suffer? Are you prepared to sacrifice? Are you prepared to love your enemies and forgive those who hurt you? A God-centered life where you say, I am more than anything a slave, a servant of God. All of Paul's plans are submitted to God. All his decisions are submitted to God. All of his steps are directed by God. All of his desires are governed by God. All of his time, God's. All of his talents and gifts and skills, God's. All of his money and treasure and stuff, God's. This is not just merely like, well, I'm a pastor now, so I'm about God when I have my pastor hat on. That's not what Paul... Paul Paul is just speaking as a man, as a Christian, and anyone who calls themselves a Christian. It's a disposition of his heart that bleeds into everything. So in the first four verses, if you just survey, what is the tone of this letter like he writes to this pastor? And this is God's inspired word. So what is the tone? Like, what's he about in this letter? Just those first four verses, and if you look for it, you'll see it. If you don't, you won't. What does he talk about? I'm God's servant. I'm God's messenger, sent to reach God's elect, building up to live like God as he obeys God's commands to preach about God's hope 
in the promises God gave that they may live for God now and dwell with God in the future. That's what this letter's about in the beginning. I wonder what Paul's trying to emphasize. Perhaps God? That life is to be about God? That the church is to be about God? That he is about God? I mean, I thought of asking myself, like, how would I identify myself? Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm the pastor of Restoration Road Church. It's interesting to see people lead with. And so I don't think we're often very good at being honest about that. So you should probably ask somebody else, how would you identify me by how I live and what I say and what I do? What's my core identity? Because it's easy for me to go, oh, I'm, I'm Sam the man, right? I'm a man. I'm male. I'm a man. Or I'm, I'm Sam the fill in the ethnicity, right? People lead with that. I'm this color. I'm this ethnicity. This is who I am. Today's world, it's like, I'm this sexuality. Or I'm this uh, eating style. I'm Sam, the vegetarian. That is not true. Right? Or I'm Sam, the graduate of blank. I'm Sam, the husband. Or Sam, the dad. Or Sam, the plumber. Or Sam, the brother. Or Sam, the accomplisher of blank, right? Is my, is my natural tendency, do I see without even saying anything that actually, no, I'm, I'm Sam, the slave of God, the servant of God. That's who I am. Everything else is extra. A good church begins with people whose bad lives have been redefined by a good God. There are a lot of things that we can say and do as a church. There are a lot of things that we can be about as a church and become known for as a church, but we are all called to be worshipers. We gather here not to talk about ourselves, but to praise the only one worth talking about. We are not to spend our time here or out there talking about our church. Why would I say that? Well, I went to lots of churches this summer. It's amazing how people talk about their church. There's nothing wrong talking about your church. It's not sinful until that's the only thing you're talking about. You know what my church did? You know what we do at my church? My church is like this. My church is awesome. My church, my church, my church, my church, my church, my church, my church. What about your God? I don't want us to be a church that talks about all the awesome stuff that we're doing or done or just, I mean, the community we've built is amazing. And blah, 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 blah. I want our eyes to be directed toward our God. We don't gather to be entertained or informed or saved by a bunch of people who are sinful. Newsflash, your pastor's sinful your worship leaders are sinful. You guys are sinful. Let's not talk about how awesome we are, but how awesome our God is. We come to remember that we are forgiven and transformed by a good God. We don't gather to impress the world with our good service and show them how awesome we are and how good we can put on a good show, but to come and declare the goodness of the God we serve because He served us. We don't gather just to get taught or get connected or get good things from God or one another, but simply and merely and wonderfully to give praise to God for His goodness. And if we don't leave here every Sunday going, man, God is good, it's possible we have failed our hearts in the wrong place because a good church begins and ends with God in the face of Jesus Christ seems obvious, but it's amazing how much we have to say that. Paul says more. God doesn't just tell us who we are. He tells us what we're supposed to do as God's people. And a good church follows God's mission. Duh. You know, it's interesting. The majority of Paul's letters, there's 13 of them, 
Paul identifies himself most often as an apostle. Literally, he means messenger. In this case, a messenger of Jesus Christ. He is sent by God on mission for God to share a message about God. That's not just the job of apostles as in the official role, but all Christians, our lives are a people who are sent on mission for God to share a message about God. And you and I are sent into unique places. You are sent into your family. I'm not. You're sent into your neighborhood. I'm not. Onto your soccer teams. I'm not. Into this city. Yeah, we are. Paul identifies himself as one who is sent. You see, God has something he's trying to accomplish, and Paul has been and sees that he's been commissioned to be a part of that mission. He's not making up some new mission. As I read and studied this summer, it was interesting. I asked myself some really hard questions, and one was like, okay, what is your personal mission? We do that as a church. You plant churches. I'm sure Derek did this. What's the mission of the church? And it's amazing how often those endeavors, as you're asking those questions, okay, I need a life mission, how often they start with you. What is my mission? Who am I? What do I want to accomplish? When if you would open your Bible, you would see that actually there's one mission, and it's God's. And you are a part of it or you're not. If you're on your own mission, that's a bad place to be. Because God has something to do. Paul writes that his apostleship is for the sake of the elect. Trigger word, big word, right? We'll hit that. For the sake of the elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. My mission is for the sake, the faith of the elect, their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Okay? The elect, there's some chosen that God's going to save with truth, and that truth is going to change their lives. God has a mission, and this mission is not something that's new, right? He planned before the world ever began. Okay, we have Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, right? You need to understand, God didn't see Adam eat of the fruit of the tree and go, Oh no! What's the backup plan? Right? He didn't go, shoot, I should have never put that tree there. I knew that was a bad idea, right? He didn't say that. Why? Because God planned before the foundation of the world for grace, for redemption. Wait, wait. How do you, before anything's created, how do you plan for grace? Because if you're planning, grace, great, grace is undeserved favor toward sinners. I mean, if you're planning for grace, you're going to need some sinners. Hello? Right? This whole story was planned by God to the praise of His glorious grace before the world was even created but we see the plan begin to unfold in that garden where you just really simply, right? Because I want you to be able to say it too. You have a good God who created a good world full of good things to display his goodness. That's easy to remember. And what happened? Man screwed it up. Man rejected God's goodness. At the, at the core level, the, the serpent tempted them and man just said, I guess God's not good. I don't believe God's good. And I'm going to find goodness apart from God over here. See, and man was special. Like he was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was made in the image of God, male and female. They were made to display God's glory in a special way, have a special relationship with him. And he stuck his two kids in this garden, right? His garden, the one he owned, the one he planted on the earth that he created, his stuff. He said, take care of the garden. I want you to build more places like this, create families, enjoy relationships with one another, and with me as you glorify me in my presence, and it'll be awesome. And they said, I think goodness might be somewhere else. Then they sinned, and they exchanged the truth of God. Right? Paul says, 
the knowledge of the truth. They took the truth about God and they believed a lie and everything fell. But even as men fell, God says, I'm promising to save you. I'm going to send a Savior. And again, God didn't go, Savior. I'll fix it. He he planned for our failure. That's a great comfort. When you mess up, God planned for that. It does not surprise him. He is in the business of saving people he knew would screw up and transforming people he knew who would continue to. Glorious. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. How would he plan to make us holy and blameless if he didn't know we were going to be unholy and guilty? Oh, he knew. He knew. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Well, I thought I was his kid. No, you abandoned his family, but he adopted you back into it. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, why would he do this? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, namely Jesus. He planned for grace. He planned for failure. And then, like, Gosh, you just see it unfold, right? He kicks him out of the garden after it's all kind of done. And you're like, wow, like adding insult to injury. Like, yeah, you screwed up. You're going to die. Now get out of my house, right? But what does God do? He says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of life and stay like this. And he had a plan to follow them out of the garden and to bring them back in that he might dwell with them for all eternity. And that is the promise we have in Jesus Christ. That be a day when in Christ, through Christ, through faith in Christ, we will get to dwell with God eternally as we were designed to in the very beginning. See, a good church doesn't have a good mission if it's not God's mission. And, and what's God's mission? He's here to save people. There's a lot of things that we could do as a church and as a people and as individuals where others would say, man, that's, that's good. You guys do some really good things. But we exist to see people reconciled with Jesus. We exist to introduce people to Jesus. That's our God-given ministry. Our business is Jesus' business. And throughout the letter of Titus, God and Jesus are identified as Savior six different times. Jesus is in the business of saving people. He's in the business of sanctifying people. What does that mean? He's in the business of redeeming people, making them new, and perpetually renewing them with the truth that accords with godliness. So the image that was marred and destroyed, he is restoring it slowly, slowly through Christ. We should never forget that not only are we restored, we are perpetually renewed, and then we are made capable, able through Christ to bring restoration to others. Again, we have to be so careful as a church where we start talking about the good things that we're doing. Oh, this, whether it be a mission trip or serving the homeless or whatever, like, I really don't care. It's fantastic. We, we, could, we could certainly, like, you know, do grand events for the city, and that, those would be good things and would bless many people. We can go on mission trips and would bless many people. But what is glorious and praiseworthy in our focus is to ask ourselves, are we seeing more people saved? Are we seeing more people that God is bringing from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Are we, are we seeing hearts transformed and those people are saved? Like, great, we got people showing up on Sunday. We got awesome music. We got a building. Who cares? What I want to know and see is hearts changing. People being saved and freed from their sin. 
I would rather hear stories about what God is doing in your heart and how he's transforming it and how I shared the gospel with this person and they came a lot. I'd rather hear that than go, yeah, we got an awesome kids ministry. It's not to say that that's bad, but it's like there's something that's primary. We're about God's mission, not ours. And that's what good churches do. A couple more. It's been said that God's church doesn't have a mission, but that the mission has a church. And God's mission comes to pass in a particular way, through a particular means. And what does Paul say here? Through the preaching of the Word. Paul writes that God's life promises are revealed in His Word through preaching this thing he has been entrusted to do by the command of Jesus. It's been famously said by a monk, which was well-intended and he was a godly man, we need to preach the gospel and occasionally use words. And I understand the sentiment, right? It's this idea of like, you know, all you're doing is telling me stuff. You're not actually living it out. I get it, and it makes sense. But I will tell you what Scripture says. Scripture says that words matter. Scripture says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Scripture says that saving faith comes from hearing the Word of God. So we have to open our mouth, and a good church proclaims the Word of God, always. I visited lots of churches this summer. Most of them opened their Bibles. I say most, I would, not because I was, yeah, I'm weird. I would time them how long it took for them to read Scripture, to read a verse, to say Jesus' name. You realize I was at a couple services this summer that Jesus' name was never mentioned. They go, no way, way, seriously. And even if they mention Jesus' name, and even if, and it's not every church, but a, a good number of them, it almost felt as if, at least according to the airtime given and the emphasis made, that the proclamation of God's Word was second or third fiddle to more important things. Like, you know, real ministry. Music. Events. Preaching has to be central. Teaching God's Word has to be central. Uh, the truth, we don't, we don't preach in church because we just want to. We preach because we need to. I don't think preaching should ever be boring, but it's certainly not aimed at being entertaining. And a lot of pastors have gotten really good at being entertaining. Like that's their goal. If I can get some laughs, they plan their jokes. Literally. Like, oh, here's a good one. I almost say stuff accidentally like funny, right? And I'm glad because it could be boring. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to entertain you. The goal isn't to keep you awake, which is a task at times, right? <laughs> It'd be really tempting to get rid of preaching because um, it's becoming more difficult to preach. I think preaching particular passages doesn't make you a lot of friends, doesn't make you super popular, but preaching is a priority because God's Word is a priority. We preach God's Word because that's where the power is. We preach God's Word because God's Word is central, supreme in our lives. We preach God's Word because if we don't, Simply stated, we're not obeying what Jesus told us to do. We preach because God's Word, if you read Scripture, you will see it has always been His chosen instrument to create and to convict and to convert and to conform His people. It's the way God works. A good church stands and upholds the Word of God. And so, let me tell you what failure is in my estimation. 
Because there's lots of like podcast pastors you can listen to, and we're so like overwhelmed with just, you can, I mean, sermons and like little video clips of pastors saying stuff. Like so much, here, here's failure to me. If after you've been here for a while, and you open your Bible to a passage we've gone through, and you go, I remember when Sam said this. I remember when he was talking about, so yeah, he made this funny quote, or you're basically quoting people or pastors more than you're quoting Scripture. That's a failure. Because this is more important than anything I might say. You should read this much more than you should listen to all those podcasts. You should spend your time studying and meditating and praying over and praying, period, the Word of God. That is what saves. That is what sanctifies. That is what we must have if we are going to be a good church. See, that a good church, obviously a good church, doesn't invent new ways to get people saved. Okay, I know they've been doing it the same way for a couple thousand years, but I got a new idea. Okay? No. A good church doesn't compromise God's word like, you know, it's a little archaic to say that now. It's not really popular. Culture's not going to like that. Who cares? <laughs> right? That's, do you know why we go through books of the Bible just straight through? Thank you for asking. I'll tell you. It's a lot easier, but it's all a lot more difficult. What? It's easier in this. I don't like to invent, like, what topical sermon I want to do. Like, that's just like, I don't know. Well, you take books of the Bible, and it's going to fall where it mays. It's going to hit what it hits. And guess what? It's going to confront you. It's easy to, like, snake around and go, oh, yes, passage about love. I'm going to preach that. Ooh, prayer. Let's do that. Um, homosexuality? Let's preach something else. That's easy. But we can't avoid the hard stuff in the name of creativity, in the name of compromise. A good church just preaches God's word and lets it smack you in the face, or the heart, hopefully. I love what Tim Keller said. He says, you know what? If your God never disagrees with you, you're probably worshiping an idealized, idealized version of yourself. I want to come face to face with my Lord. I want Him to come and confront me about my life, and I also want Him to come and comfort me when I'm despairing. And so I'm going to spend time in His Word, every little detail, bit of it, and read it because it is living and it is active. I love how Paul describes his own ministry, and this is my prayer for ours as we talked about being a good church, proclaiming God's word. He says, therefore, having this ministry, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Now think about this. All the church is doing all kinds of crazy, weird, awesome, terrible things. Paul could write this today, right? We could do all kinds of stuff. Fireworks and weird sermons and like all kinds. He says, you know what? We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what I want to be. This is what God's Word says. Take it up with Him. Period. The Word of God brings life. New life. In times and ways that surprise and shock us. And the Word of God continues to bring renewed life. Changing us and challenging us in different ways at different times in our lives. The same Scriptures sometimes. And that's because, as the writer of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? It goes deep. You say one thing, but the heart, oh, God knows. 
Ephesians tells us that the Lord, in taking care of his bride, protects her and cares for her by washing her with the word. Did you know it said that? Jesus said to his disciples, right? Hey, don't just live by ribeye steak alone, but by the word. And more than that, Jesus in the Gospel of John is revealed as the word of God in human flesh. So a church without the word, a church that doesn't make decisions with the word, a church that doesn't preach the word, that doesn't discipline with the word, that doesn't encourage with the word, is a church without Jesus. I don't care what they say. If there's no word, there's no Jesus. And I desperately want Jesus at the center of this place. Last thing, I want you to look at who Paul writes to, right? This young guy named, young guy named Titus says, my true child in the common faith. The last thing we learn about a good church is written about Titus, which is something you'd be like, probably read by if I didn't point out to it, point it out. Nothing's really recorded about Titus and his conversion. It's clear that he um, came to faith under Paul's ministry, that, that he led him to Jesus. Uh, probably on his first missionary journey, we're not sure, but then Titus kind of just is a partner with Paul and he shows up. You got these two pastors, right? You got Timothy and you got Titus. Timothy is um, the guy that's sent to Ephesus. Timothy's the guy that has confidence issues. Timothy's the guy that basically is like, you know, don't let them look down on the youthfulness and, and be strong because I know these old dudes are like picking on you because you're young. Like, he's kind of the guy that Paul has to encourage. Titus is the guy who went to Corinth. Corinth is a messed up church. Titus is the guy, like, he comes in, he's like the fixer. I'm going to fix all this, right? And so he's in Crete to fix things, to, to kind of organize what was started when Paul planted the church. And so he's this young Gentile believer who was once a stranger, and now he's become a pastor. But he doesn't speak to Titus as if he's like, you know, uh, I got this job for you to do. Um, my uh, co-worker, like my minion. Like, that's not how he talks to him. He calls him his true child, which I know seems a little weird for us, right? But I want you to just think of it in terms of family language. Because, see, the communities of the world, and there's lots of them, they're not all evil, but most of the communities of the world, the different communities you are a part of, most of those are built on affinity. In other words, we like the same things. We're going to be in the same garden club. We're going to go into 4-H. We're going to be on the soccer team. Like, everyone's there because they have something in common. That's not what the church is like. The church isn't a group that's built on affinity. The group isn't, we don't come together because we're the same. Hey, to break it to you, we're all very different. We, we may not even know each other had we not have the church. We wouldn't show up at the same things. We wouldn't like the same things. We're not at the same life stages. You'll see in this letter, he talks to old women and young women and old men and young men and like of all kinds. It's a diverse body that is brought together by one common faith. So let me tell you the two things that we have in common. There's a lot we don't. I'm sure many of you love romantic comedies, hate them. I love sci-fi. I mean, some of you can't stand steak. I love ribeye, right? We're, we're different. We like different things. We think different things. But we have two things for sure in common. One, you're a sinner. A really bad one. An ugly one. An evil one. You've got dark secrets you've never told anybody and yet Jesus knows, and me too. I'm a sinner. I am more broken than you know and more broken than I know. Did you know if the Lord gave you a really long roll, that butcher paper? Remember in school, that butcher paper, like big sheets? 
Love that stuff when I was a teacher, right? They're really hard to rip. But all, if they give you, like, here's a whole roll, I want you to write down every sin you've ever committed. And you're like, I'm 43 years old, <laughs> right? Okay. So I'm, like, you know, taking these big fat pens and, like, going, like, I'm out of ink. He's like, here you go. I'm like, okay. Did you know, no matter how much time I'm given, I would never, ever be able to write all the sins I've committed. I don't even fully know them. But Jesus does. So one thing that brings us together, as morbid as it is, is our sin. We gather here as sinners. And the second thing, we gather here as sinners saved by grace. The other thing we have in common is the radical love of Jesus who says, I know who you are more than anyone else does, and I love you. Oh, praise God someone does, right? Because if you know all my darkness, I bet you wouldn't love me. But Jesus does, and he knows everything more than I even know. And that's what brings us together as family. See, you weren't adopted into God's family to be living as an only child. When you became a son and daughter of the king, you actually became at the same moment a brother and sister in Christ. More than anything, did you know God uses the word family and words that relate to family to describe the church? But I would argue, other than really weird cults, most churches don't function like that because it's uncomfortable because it's countercultural. I'd rather just, you know, church for me is just, I've got a Costco membership and I go there and I get what I need and then I can leave, but yep, I'm a member. See, I'm a member, right? But church is supposed to be family and that has a lot of connotations to it, not all good. Good in the eyes of God. Like the idea of church being family, right? We all, I know like someone's like, you know, my, my family's a little dysfunctional. Like, I'll get a little newsflash for you. That's all families, okay? We're all messed up in different colors and variations. But here's what genuine healthy family does. Like when, when someone is hurting, when someone makes a mistake, when someone's just irritating a snot, which never happens in my family, right? I don't just go, okay, you're no longer family. I don't like you. You're hard to love. You don't like anything I like. You're making a mess. You're out. That's not how it works, is it? Yeah, you're family. And at times, we tolerate you. And at times, you tolerate us, right? Because we're family. Family is a unique and powerful thing. We are very different, but family comes and embraces and, dare I say, even loves those differences. Family comes and they begin, even if they don't want to, but because we're family, we take an interest in one another's life. And that doesn't mean any group that gets a certain amount of size, you'll be able to have interest in everyone's life. But you have interest in lives of those who are gathered here with the shared brokenness and the shared redemption we have in Jesus. And then, because we're family, we can genuinely rejoice with one another. We can genuinely hope like you, like you hope for your children. Gosh, I hope for your greatness. I hope for your success. I hope for your healing. And it'd be genuine. Not just like, yeah, we're probably the same club. Hope you do good. Where we rejoice with one another, and we weep with one another when, when someone is genuinely struggling, when someone is genuinely hurting, and someone is, whether it be a health thing or just a life thing, and you're like, yes, I just want to cry with you. I can't fix it. We can't fix every aspect of family, but I want to be with you because we're family. So you call me, I'm there. That kind of family. Where we weep with one another, where we know each other well enough to come and say, you ticked me off. You know, it's being part of family. And I'll tell you right now, when someone visits our church and they go, 
Like, I mean, not that you're going to do this if you're visiting. Sorry, but I'll make you sound bad. Like, I didn't really like what you did, blah, 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 right? Never get emails like that or conversations. But when a family member comes and says, I didn't like that, let's sit down and talk. I don't care what outside our family says, but when family asks a question, when family is hurting, I want to know. Because I want to receive the wounds of a friend. A good church loves and lives as God's family, especially when things get difficult. And did you know what Jesus said about this? In John 13, verse 35, I believe, we think like, how is the, how is the world going to know about Jesus? We need to do big events that serve the city and put up big signs and make sure we give all kinds of money and make sure we feed every homeless person we can find. And none of those things are bad or evil. But you know what Jesus said is the best way to reach the world? He says, John 13, 35, you want to know how they'll know you're my disciples? That you love one another. You realize that that people are to see us and how we live and go, man, they love each other. And not love each other like in weird, culty, freaky way, right? But as family, a, a kind of love that the world looks at and goes, that's different, right? There are without doubt bad churches. But I believe there's no such thing as churchless Christianity. You cannot know God through Jesus and not love the church that he came to save of all its imperfections. But a good church begins and ends with a good God who came to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are a chosen group of worshipers who make much of Jesus. We are disciples who gather together to follow Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in Christ living as the family of Jesus on mission together as ambassadors to make much of Jesus. So know that, that a good church, or I should say a church, is not good because it has good members or good deacons or good pastors, but because it has a good God. A good church, ready, is only full of bad people. A good church is only full of bad people who find their goodness in God. That's why we have this table. Again, this is one of those things like a good church takes communion every Sunday. You know why we take communion every Sunday? Other than Jesus said he probably should. This is the table of sin and salvation. This is the table where as you come up, something you're confessing something. This is the table where you come face to face with just how bad you are. Like, this is the table where this cup represents the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and his body broken for you. As I was worshiping between services, I was thinking about like a stranger coming up and seeing Jesus on the cross and going, wow, I wonder what that guy did. You know what the thought is supposed to be? What did I do? Like, when you come to the table, you declare, I'm bad. I am so bad that it took the sacrifice of the Son of God to forgive my sin. I mean, we may not know how bad each other are, but, but Jesus shows us this is how bad you are. You're horrible. Your sin is so deep and so pervasive it takes God in human flesh coming to shed his blood for your life. That's what you, did you know that? Did you know that's what you're confessing? Did you come and go, 
there's something else that's being confessed, right? It's the sin and the salvation because, yes, we come and we go, oh, my gosh, I'm so bad. But we also declare God is so good because why? Yes, you're so bad Jesus had to die for your sin. But God is so good that Jesus loves enough to come and die for your sin. So you have this meeting of like, I'm horrible. God's awesome. I'm bad. God's good. I'm more sinful than I'll ever admit, know, or imagine. But you are more loved than you could possibly know. That is the cross. And so when you leave here, you go, what makes a good church? My prayer is that you leave thinking about Jesus. His goodness, His grace, His generosity, and not whether the music was good, the sermon was good, or whatever, just Jesus is good. That's where we rest. That's why we sing. That's why we give. That's why we're here. Let's pray.